what we've discovered is if you provide the what, the students can learn how to write, and gradually the what becomes easier and easier because of the practice. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Director of Marketing. Our goal here is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. Hi everyone, this week we're going to switch it up a bit and play for you the audio portion of one of our IEW webinars. Because the webinar itself is over an hour, we're splitting it into two parts, but we'll post both of them this week. And we'll post any links or websites mentioned in this recording at IEW.com podcast. Enjoy! Well, hello, good evening. Andrew Pudewa here, hailing from our IEW headquarters in eastern Oklahoma. It is good to be with you on this Monday evening for Unit 7 webinar as we proceed through the year supporting teachers and tutors and parents working with the Structure and Style program. If you are following along in your Teaching Writing Structure and Style materials, if you have the old TWSS that would resemble that which is on the left, or perhaps even older, I don't know, then we'd be on pages 53 plus pages 15 and 19, the tips and tricks. Hopefully you have the new second edition, a much improved TWSS, page 109 to 124. And if you don't have the new edition, there is an upgrade option. So please do feel free to click there and get information about that if you have not already. It is a much improved and very, very economical way to expand your resources for teaching writing with structure and style. We are essentially getting in toward the end of the sequence here, toward the end of the school year. I know it doesn't feel like it, although here in Oklahoma it's been so warm, we're deceived, and the flowers are deceived, and the insects are deceived into thinking it's summer already. I don't know what the temperature is where you are. If you're in sunny Southern California, it's probably pretty much the same as it is all year round. But here, we see the schedule, units one and two, note makings, writing from notes. We generally suggest that you go for that in September. Retelling narrative stories, October. Unit four, summarizing a reference with the topic clincher paragraph and the limiting idea that becomes so critical for the rest of the units in November. And then writing from pictures, we kind of bundle that together December, January. February, last month we did summarizing multiple references with the mini books or similar resources. And then with this month, we will be helping you move into Unit 7, which is inventive writing. We used to call this, and in the old edition, originally Dr. Webster called it creative writing. 
but because of the baggage that kind of goes along with that term creative writing, as well as a little more uh, honest, I think, approach to creativity, we call this now inventive writing. And so that's where we are now in March and in April. We'll talk about the formal essay models in May, the formal critiques. And depending on where you are in the country and what your life and schedule are like, probably by the middle to end of May, you will be ready for a little break. Although, if you end up going through the summer, we will be having some extracurricular webinars and maybe some special guests through the summer. But these Monday nights once a month together are oh so good for me. Keeps me on track, keeps me going. I have to continue to kind of clear my head of the cobwebs and move forward through the syllabus as all of us do. So one of the funny questions that was asked to me once was, I think it was a, a teacher training I was doing for a school district and I went through kind of the whole overview and we did unit one and two and then at the first break one of the teachers said, so why do you take so long to get to real writing? Real writing. And I thought, okay, real writing. I think what she means is real writing by uh, it's just you and the paper and your brain and whatever you happen to carry around in it, which, yes, indeed would be our number seven, be unit seven, because up to that point we give source texts and stories and references and pictures and research ideas. So, yes, in a way, it does take us a while to build up to that idea that it's just you and whatever you can produce without any external source. But the problem, of course, is that so many people start with that, that blank brain, blank page problem. Most kids who hate writing, they struggle. I don't know what to write. I can't think of anything. And of course, we have the tremendous opportunity to solve that problem, to wipe away those tears. And I'm assuming that if you're with us tonight, you are pretty well into this process. And perhaps you have a good personal story or testimonial to the idea that our approach can take those kids who struggle so much with that process and get them going right off. And of course, what a great joy. So most writing programs start there in Unit 7, and yet we've got this whole nice sequence. One of the things I often say is that, you know, some programs require you to think of something in order to learn to write. You have to think of content in order to begin the process of learning what to write. Whereas what we've discovered is if you provide the what, the students can learn how to write, and gradually the what becomes easier and easier because of the practice. So how are we different? Well, units one and two, you've got students using the keyword and telling back the concepts. There's a little picture of the fox and the goat. Aesop fables are great. The story sequence chart gives students the opportunity to exercise some creative elements without being, you know, kind of stuck. Oh, no, I can't think of anything. And so that idea of keep the plot but change the characters of the setting. They have a concept of what the whole story will look like and they can move forward with that vision of the whole. 
and of course in unit 3 we introduced the idea that each paragraph has a particular purpose. This continues on into unit 4 where a paragraph now has the job of carrying a topic which would be a division of the whole and a couple of the changes of course are that the students are going to create a keyword outline from the facts not the sentences and so they have to limit the facts they take. This idea of summarizing, and I think some of you were with us when I pointed out that the word summarize is a kind of nasty word for a lot of kids. They, nobody really likes the word summarize because if you know any math talk at all, you look at that S-U-M and you think sum. Well, that's the whole of something. That's all of something. That's the total. So when you summarize, you must have to tell all that in this much less space. But of course, nobody can tell all that in a little bit of space. They can only tell some of it, which is why properly spelled it should be S-O-M-E hyphen A hyphen R-I-Z-E. Or with a tip to the Canadians and English-speaking people from other countries, R-I-Z-E. But that is critical to the rest of our syllabus, Unit 5, writing from pictures. How do you think? How do you think of stuff? How do you come up with ideas? How do you force your brain to produce some commentary, some kind of description, some kind of element, story, whatever, to go with the pictures? And that's where we move then toward that blank page. That's where we move in to the skills of thinking. And I always point out that Unit 5 is kind of the linchpin unit. So hard it is for some people, and I'd be the first to admit, I find Unit 5 the hardest one to teach, really, because I'm not all that creative of a person, honestly. But the creativity can be practiced. The thinking skills can be practiced and improved over time. And I am a personal uh, testament, having experienced that, that you can learn to think. Then, of course, Unit 6, we had our summarizing multiple references. That's where we have too many facts from too many sources. And, of course, your students have likely learned some of the stylistic techniques. One of the most important concepts that we try to instill from the beginning and in every unit, and I, I'm sorry if I am beating a dead horse or pounding a nail that's already in, or frothing an already mixed Caesar salad dressing. I don't know. But it's so important, we always want to point out that the rule, the easy plus one, is so critical. So as you teach the stylistic techniques, you march through the units over the course of the school year, basically one per month. And so you see unit one and two, unit three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. You can go through those according to the calendar but you would drip in the dress-ups as they become easy. And what is the definition of easy? Easy is what a student can do without much help, and it doesn't sound too goofy most of the time, and that then would define what is easy. And so then, and only then, do you add in the next stylistic technique. This little diagram here, as we see, and I'll play it again so you can see how they kind of drop in little by little. Um, this speed is not dictated. This is just simply an example of a speed that you may or may not be able to go 
with students depending on their age and aptitude. If you have younger students or students who the whole reading writing thing is a little bit more challenging, then of course you would go slower than this chart. If you're working at a high school level, who knows, you may be able to go a little faster than this chart. And you don't have to feel as though you need to finish all the dress-ups, openers, decorations, triples, and advanced techniques in one year. You've got plenty of time. You've generally got two, three, four, maybe five years of working through structure and style, giving the students the opportunity for mastery. And so if, and, and this is my reminder for you, if your students are ever complaining saying, this checklist is too hard. Do I have to do everything on the checklist? This is too hard. If the, you get that kind of pushback, essentially what the students are saying is, teacher, mom, tutor, teacher, you taught me too much too fast. And in that case, you can slow down. You can even pull a few things off the checklist and say, okay, fine. Let's just cut off these things and stick with these seven things. And when doing these things has become easy, meaning you can do it without much help, and it's pretty good, secretly thinking doesn't sound too goofy most of the time, you tell me when you're ready for the next technique, and we'll add it in. But we are pretty strict about the stylistic techniques in terms of each one that has been taught in every paragraph as you move through the syllabus. That way you get a mastery approach and they gradually find that doing these techniques is easy. I'm happy to see comments like Karen's about how using the dress-up techniques result in sophisticated word choices and a student looking at it as a challenge or a puzzle because that's what we really love. We really love the idea of students who see it kind of like Legos, you know, here's the keyword outline, here's the dress-ups, here's the LY word list, here's the band verbs, band adjectives, here's all these word pieces. Now how do we put it together and create something? And that creativity, like the Legos of language, is really helpful. Jill, very good question, and it, it is sometimes a bit of confusion because we put that clincher rule on the checklist but the topic clincher rule is a structural idea. So it is not connected with the dress-ups per se. The dress-ups are word usages and specific grammatical constructions that are placed as the student is able anywhere in the paragraph, whereas the topic clincher rule that the topic sentence and the clincher sentence must repeat or reflect two to three key words that is introduced in Unit 4 according to the calendar that brings you to Unit 4, which hopefully would be by November if you're working with, say, students grade 4, 5, and up, uh, or maybe a little bit later with younger children, and then reinforced each year as you get to Unit 4. But that topic clincher rule is a structural idea, so it's not one of the stylistic techniques and so you can kind of think about them separately, if you will. So hopefully that answers that question. And Maria is asking, is the who, which clause the hardest, or does it just depend on the student? And Marie, I have found that, yes, in some teaching circumstances, the who, which clause does tend to be the hardest for the students to get to using e easily or naturally. 
for perhaps a variety of reasons. Certainly, in my experience, foreign language learners, in some languages, they don't use that who, which clause, what we might call an adjective clause. They don't use it quite as often or frequently or naturally or, or as colloquially as perhaps we do in English. And so it is less familiar. It can be a little more awkward. I have noticed that working with teachers who teach groups of students who their first language is Spanish, they kind of understand that construction when they read it, but it seems very literary. They don't use it as much as, say, we might. The other case might be students who, for some reason, just you know haven't absorbed a variety of ways that that is used in literature or in the books they're reading or in daily conversation. It does make you know a, a bit more of a complex sentence. And so when you meet students who find that to be on the more difficult to use or when they use it, it's slightly awkward side, then what I would recommend is that you kind of go through some books and find some sentences or paragraphs in some of the books that you're reading that use the who clause or which clause, that use who or which to create an adjective clause, and pull those out of the printed materials you have available and say, aha, here's an example of this in this book. Here's an example of this in this writing. And they can focus on seeing examples of how it's done pretty well. And that will help to build the language database for the student. I see question about, yes, kind of struggling with the topic clincher. And Julie's answer is yes. When you write your keyword outline, you can use those same three words in the last sentence. The other thing you can do is that you can write the first sentence and keep going. And when you get to the end of the paragraph, when you basically said everything you want to say, whether it's unit four or five or six, you get to the end, just read the first sentence. And you can even, if you can't figure out a way to fit two or three words from that first sentence in a final sentence, you can even write the same sentence again, almost verbatim, and then use a thesaurus to come up with a way to change two or three of those words. And that actually will work. So I know some teachers in school district I used to work with in Rockland, California, who found that for their grade three, four, five students, just copy the topic sentence at the end of the paragraph. That's your clincher. Now use a thesaurus and change a few words. And it's amazing how well that actually does work. So. Good, good questions, everybody. Thank you so much for contributing those. So with inventive writing, we will discover that having had the runway of units one through six, this blank page isn't so frustrating. One of the key ideas, of course, that we started in unit one, because that's what unit one is, and continued through units two, three, four, five, six, is that outline idea, so that we are separating the complexity of what to write and then how to write it. Love this Calvin and Hobbes. You know, I used to find, I used to hate writing assignments, but now I enjoy them. I realize the purpose of writing is to inflate weak ideas, obscure poor reasoning, and inhibit clarity.
With a little practice, writing can be an intimidating and impenetrable fog. Want to see my book report? And of course, he reads The Dynamics of Interbeing and Monological Imperatives in Dick and Jane, a study in psychic transrelational gender modes. <laughs> Calvin, academia, here I come. Sadly, I hate to say this, but I don't know if it's still going on, but for years there was actually a bad writing contest where someone who I guess had a creative inclination searched through all sorts of academic papers and journal articles and whatnot and found like the worst prose you could possibly come up with and then gave it the bad writing award that would probably fall into this inflate weak ideas, obscure poor reasoning, inhibit clarity. But we want exactly the opposite. We want uh, good ideas with clear reasoning and excellent clarity. So how do we do that? One thing we changed, and some of you know why. If not, I'll just go over it very quickly. We changed the term that we used to use in Unit 7, which was Dr. Webster's original term from 30-some years ago, creative writing, to inventive writing. Why? Well, the idea is that when you invent something, it comes from the Latin root invenio, which essentially means to find or discover. Whereas creative comes from the Latin root creo, which means to create, I create. In the beginning of Genesis, it says God created for the heavens and the earth, ex nihilo, from nothing, God created. And so that creative has for some of us this connotation that you have to come up with something completely new and original that nobody else ever thought of before. And if you steal an idea from anywhere, well, that would be cheating, plagiarism, a crime, horrible, you would be uncreative. And so there's this kind of baggage associated. The other thing, of course, is that creative writing in a broad sense, and rightly so, would probably include things that we don't include, things such as poetry or a stream of consciousness type of prose, playing with words, screenplays, all, all sorts of wordplay and wider variety of composition. We're really much more kind of classical in our approach. We're talking about creative or what we say inventive writing in terms of the canon of invention. In other words, coming up with content, whether that be descriptive or expository explanation or perhaps persuasive at some point. And the th interesting thing about creativity in general is, as far as I know, only God produces something from nothing. The rest of us are kind of stuck with what we've got. And that is why this verb invent is the root for inventive, but also the root for inventory. And here we see a picture of a guy counting up you know, on the shelves the stock, the inventory. And what I've experienced, I'm sure many of you had, have experienced, is you can't really think of something that you can't think of. You can't really find something in your brain that isn't there to begin with. You can't really create unless you have some stuff to create with. And so this inventive, I think, is a little more honest. And one of the things that I do, and we'll talk about a little later, is when I hit this unit, I always say, OK, let's have a brain inventory. Let's make a list of all the things that you know something about. 
and start to kind of catalog and get a feeling for what could we go to and find enough stuff about something that we could then write what we think our ideas or opinions. So that is why we've changed it to inventive. Most of you are familiar, I think, with the tried and true Unit 7 My Dog model. It's very st stereotypical. A lot of times you'll have teachers. In fact, it was just so funny. I, I met a woman just a few days ago. We were at a conference in Fort Worth, Texas, and she had been an elementary school teacher for seven years before she got out and now she's into homeschooling but she said they would tell us to have the students write and give us these ideas and kind of prompts or suggestions or writing topics but never tell us how to help the kids be successful with that and as she said you know they'd say write about your pet write about your dog write about your this or that and the kids just would kind of seem dead in the water i'm so excited to see this IEW approach and of course typically my dog what do you get right about your dog unless you have a discipline of think first then write, and the knowledge of how to think by breaking things into topics breaking things into divisions and then using the skills of asking questions within those divisions yeah you're gonna get something like my dog is named spot he is a really, really cool dog, and I really, really like him because he is so awesome, and he is really fun, and we have a lot of fun together because he is the most awesome dog in the world, the end. And what do you do with that? You know, What do you do with that? How do you get beyond that? So we have the My Dog model to say, first thing you do is you look for divisions. You know what you're going to write about? Okay, your dog, your house what you want to be when you grow up, making spaghetti, whatever your subject might be. You figure that, and then you list the possible topics. In the My Dog model, you say, okay, what are some divisions? What are some aspects? What are some things about my dog? Well, there's the way he looks, there's his food, and the tricks he cannot learn. And so we get that chart. The more topics you have, the easier it is then to select. If you're going to go for five paragraphs, as in the My Dog model, you need at least three possible uh, topics, three themes to work with. If you have more, that's even better, and so no problem there. The other thing is that once you get those topics, you want to have the habit of asking questions. There are categories of questions. The first one is kind of your basic information. Who, what, why, when, where, how. The six questions I mentioned in the Unit 5 webinar, uh, Kipling wrote a marvelous poem about these six words. He called them the six wise men who taught me everything I know, trusted servants. And then he says, Monday through Friday, and I only use them in my free time. But I have a little friend who puts them to work continuously. The cute idea that children, of course, are full of questions, willing to ask questions. Then you can move into, perhaps, it may or may not be appropriate given the subject matter, the sensory questions. What do you see? What do you hear? What do you feel? What do you smell? What do you taste? Those sensory questions, the five senses, and maybe the sixth sense, what do you intuit, or perhaps what is common sense, those can be very, very helpful in helping the student come up with more de detail. So as you're describing what does your dog look like, well, how about also 
What does he sound like? You know, what do you hear? What do you smell? What do you taste when you're with your dog? What does the dog see or feel or smell or taste when he eats his food? What would you hear or feel or smell when you or smell? I don't know smell, but <laughs> when you do the tricks or see the tricks, then you can move into the third category, which is kind of your, I guess you might call it your critical questions, your more philosophical questions. What's the best thing, the worst thing? What are some of the problems? What are the solutions? What's the value, significance, impact? What's the meaning of it all? Kind of wax philosophical. So these categories of questions can be very helpful. And of course, not every question works for every topic, but sometimes you can use the same question again. What do you see? What else would 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 you see? You might actually fill up a whole paragraph, depending on the subject and topic, with one question five or six times. So you outline those topics and then write the body paragraphs. And I've done this so many times, and it just goes so much more smoothly when you lay out the process for the students. And I love uh, Arlene's comment. Arlene, you're also, like Bernadette, one of those people who's been around as long as I am. God bless you, and thank you for joining us. But yes, a lot of times students, they get this process, they go off into a different environment and they can fall back on this basic process they've learned. We do have to stop here because we're out of time for today. But because we don't want to leave you hanging too long, we'll go ahead and post the rest of the content later this week. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes or Stitcher, or just visit us each week at IEW.com podcast. Until then, on behalf of Andrew Poudois and the team at IEW, I thank you for the privilege of allowing us to partner with you on this educational journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking.